Part 17 of Collected Prose by James Elroy Flecker This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The New Poetry of Mr. Houseman's Shropshire Lad The man who treats poetry as a scholar treats his classics with loving care and affectionate reverence the man who loves the muse Euterpe because she is so beautiful and not because she is the sister of Cleo or the handmaid of Urania will ever continue to judge of poetry line by line and poem by poem judging by the only true and just standard he will perhaps never realize the attitude of that outer circle of readers those veritable amateurs who loving poetry less intelligently but no less sincerely than himself yet are not content with vivid fancies delicate thoughts and sweet expressions and powerful harmonies but seek in what they read for a statement of philosophy or at least a uniform and attractive view of the world life and love Thus it is, so many Englishmen consider that poetry died with Tennyson, or lives only with Swinburne. Modern poetry appears to be in so chaotic a state that it is impossible to trace any definite new movement, or the prevalence of any distinctive new idea. Unable to discover a main tendency, a predominating idea in contemporary verse, many condemn the whole as minor, and complain the poetry is dead. While it is intended to show here that there is a main movement, a real tendency in modern poetry, it is merely to revive a flagging interest. Poetry becomes no better by being made a part of a movement. It must, of course, be taken on its merits, line by line and poem by poem. But it may become more interesting. It is our object here to show that the significance and trend of modern poetry is the creation of a new poetical language to supersede the Victorian convention. Poetry is not dead, but the older generation is right in saying that the older poetry is dead. The famous English poets from Coleridge to Swinburne form a strong, a splendid, a connected dynasty, only once interrupted, and that only for a decade. These men bear a strong resemblance to each other in the vigour of their thought, in the dignity of their style, and, one may add, in the portentous volume of their works. Even Shelley, untimely cut off at the age of thirty, has left more work than a thousand large pages, more than forty thousand lines of verse, more than all we possess of Lucretius, Virgil, Horace, and Propertius. This amazing fertility was undoubtedly a sign of strength and health, of an activity parallel to that of the Elizabethan age, and founded, in the same way, on a sense of national greatness. But the sense of the dignity of the muses, of the importance of some more or less vague personal mission, was far more prominent in these men than it had been among the humbler writers of our drama. The great Victorian poets clearly felt their own importance. Wordsworth and Browning were philosophers, 
Byron, Shelley, and Swinburne, revolutionaries, Rossetti and Morris were the leaders of an enthusiastic brotherhood. Coleridge and Matthew Arnold employed themselves in criticism. Even Keats worked very consciously for his ideal of beauty, and the official position of Tennyson dignified the pronouncements of In Memoriam. It was natural, however, that these merits should bring corresponding defects. The moral and philosophic tone of the Victorians sometimes destroyed their inspiration, and the enormous bulk of their volumes was bound to contain a rather unnecessary proportion of poems with a purely biographical interest. Matthew Arnold, for instance, may seem to some to have obtained, by means of his prose writings, and by means of rather tangible and obvious poetic effects, an unmerited popularity for his verses, the melody of which is often harsh, and the sentiment civilian. But even he keeps his place by four or five magnificent poems, and, in the end, we are compelled to admit not only that all these poets deserve their high reputations, but also that in grandeur of diction no modern or new author has approached the best work of these epic songwriters. They are still flattered by imitation, and before coming to what is significant, we may well dismiss what is insignificant in modern poetry. In America especially, a country that still looks upon Macaulay as the typical English prose writer, there has been no attempt to follow the tradition of Whitman and write American instead of English. America approves of poets who write the now foreign language of the British Isles, and the result is that her most popular versifiers can do nothing but imitate Tennyson, never realising that there is as much chance of immortality for these experiments in an unknown tongue as there was for the Latin poems written by the learned Italians of the late Renaissance. The English living imitators of Victorian style also claim a moment's notice. Of these, Mr. Stephen Phillips is the most important. The grave sonority of Christ in Hades, the pleasant metrical variation of Marpessa, produced a certain impression. That Marpessa is a tour de force is obvious upon close analysis. The Mr. Stephen Phillips is a close follower and rather slavish imitator of Tennyson can be proved. And if that vulgar phrase of the journalists, clever but uninspired, can be employed justly of anyone, it can be employed of those plays so successful on the stage whose rather meretricious wonders impressed the London mob. Mr. William Watson, a writer far duller and less skilful than Mr. Phillips, has tried, in a most brazen manner, to rewrite Keats, Tennyson, and even Stevenson. He begins a poem, Under the Dark and Piney Steep. The temporary reputation acquired by Mr. Watson is particularly pernicious to the well-being of poetry, and it is ridiculous, as well as aggravating, that any notice should be taken of his pompous outcries. The poetical language imitated by these writers, that of the nineteenth century, is in obvious distinction to that of the eighteenth. Blake, the André Chénier of English Romanticism, drew upon the Elizabethans and the inspiration of divine ecstasy to replenish his idiom. 
Coleridge turned to the old ballads and Wordsworth, to nature and the rustics. But there was nothing rustic in the convention that they formed, a convention admirably suited for the expression of the high ideals and fervid thoughts of themselves and their successors. The royal harmonies of Hyperion, the voluptuously falling cadences of Rossetti, the clear rustle of Tennyson's measure, the impetuosity of Shelley and Swinburne, spring from a nearly identical convention, rich and infinitely variable, which, nevertheless, yearly became more distant from the general language of mankind. In all the manners really congenial to them, the style, and usually the theme, of Swinburne and Tennyson is classical. Meanwhile, concurrent with this lofty literature, a popular style of poetry never ceased to exist, a poetry where the popular idiom was permitted and popular subjects allowed. The greater poets attempted this frequently, and Rossetti's Jenny is a fine example of a style he too seldom employed. But the real masters of this more secular verse were the prose writers, Charles Lamb and Thackeray, and the poets Hood and Patmore. A word must be said of Browning in this connection. He made a desperate and conscious effort to introduce the language of conversation into his poetry. But he fell into a mistake into which Mr. Kipling sometimes falls, that of using slang and more or less vulgar language by preference. Swinburne, again, in The Sisters, has made a weird and disastrous effort to use plain speech. In his other plays, he uses the phraseology of conversation, either by contrast, or else to obtain weighty monosyllabic lines of blank verse, and thereby to lay a heightened and unnatural stress on the single words. Shelley's Cenci is an earlier and perhaps more successful attempt in the same style. But the most signal example of a conscious combination of what may be briefly called old and new comes from Tennyson. The exquisite poem to Fitzgerald, beginning, Old Fitz, who from your suburb grange, is not only simpler and more sincere, but also in a far more natural vein than the bulk of his work, and, more especially still, he contains a pathetic parody of his own usual splendid verbiage. The poem of Tiresias, found, with shallow scraps of manuscript, and dating many a year ago, is enclosed between two addresses to Fitzgerald, one written to the living, the other to the dead. Quoting from the last lines of Tiresias right into the second poem, while the golden lyre is ever sounding in heroic ears, heroic hymns, and every way the veils wind, clouded with the grateful incense fume of those who mix all odour to the gods on one far height, in one far shining fire. One height and one far shining fire. And while I fancied that my friend, for this brief idyll would require a less diffuse and opulent end, and would defend his judgment well, if I should deem it over-nice, the tolling of his funeral bell broke on my pagan paradise. For Tennyson in his old age this, and not that of in memoriam, was a language of sincerity and sorrow. 
The work of yet another poet can afford a striking contrast of this sort. In The Sphinx, Oscar Wilde compressed and exaggerated the sumptuous glories of the old style by the aid of a vast vocabulary drawn from the storehouse of French Romanticism. And did you mark the Cyprian kiss, white Adon, on his catafalque? And did you follow Amanolk, the god of Heliopolis? And did you talk with Thoth? And did you hear the moon-horned Io weep? And know the painted kings who sleep beneath the wedge-shaped pyramid? Withal, the Sphinx is a vigorous and lively poem. Words are used for the sheer joy of their sonorous eccentricity and the wild rhetoric gives the effect of a gorgeous nightmare. Two years before, he wrote of a prisoner in his poem, The Ballad of Reading Jail. He walked among the trial men, in a suit of shabby grey. A cricket cap was on his head, and his step seemed light and gay. But I never saw a man who looked so wistfully at the day. Now this is the language of almost all that is best in modern poetry. It was by no means Wilde's invention. Reading Jail is later than John Davidson's ballads, and later than the Shropshire Lad. It is the language of Bridges, Hardy, and Yeats, and of all the significant writers that are younger still. But of all volumes of modern verse, the Shropshire Lad is the most complete vindication of this new and simple style and is, therefore, a fit example to be given here. Mr. A. E. Houseman is famous as a classical scholar. This fact, and the fact that among these loving descriptions of English country life and manners, we find a classical manner and a view of life, or even a classical theme, make it all the more surprising that he should have so entirely broken away from the tradition that gave us Tennyson's Ulysses, Swinburne's Erechtheus, or Mr. Murray's Swinburnian translations of Euripides. It is curious and pleasant to find interspersed among these village songs stray memories of the distant past of a distant land. A Grecian lad, as I hear tell, one that many loved in vain, looked into a forest well, and never looked away again. There, when the turf in springtime flowers, With downward eye and gazes sad, Stands amid the glancing showers A jonquil, not a Grecian lad. This poem is marked by no difference of style from the others, And no one can fail to recognise here, as elsewhere, A happy exactness, a delight in making the point That, apart from any reference to the subject, Mark the scholar. We are reminded of Landor at his briefest and best. Another poem, called The Merry Guide, describes how a youth with mien to match the morning, a youth with friendly brows, led the poet across glittering pastures and by hanging woods, and by silver waters to the music of the great gale. The guide is some mysterious stranger, we know not who, and the secret, preciously hidden for so long, is in the last verse wonderfully revealed. And midst the fluttering legion of all that ever died, I follow, and before us goes the delightful guide, with lips that brim with laughter, but never once respond, and feet that fly on feathers, 
and serpent-circled wand. We have begun by dwelling on an aspect of this work which, though fascinating, is not of paramount importance. At all events, the extracts serve as an introduction to anything there may be to say on the metres of the Shropshire Lad. Except by Mr. Davidson, in his powerful tales in verse, the simple stanzas of the ballads have not been often successfully used in the nineteenth century. In this book there are no complicated or involved measures, and no blank verse. There is one metre, however, the structure of which calls for a special notice. Here of a Sunday morning my love and I would lie, and see the coloured counties, and hear the lark so high about us in the sky. It is a charming metre. The schizonic effect of the last line is wistfully harmonious. I would not rashly call it new. Who can lightly glance over all English poetry, with its manifold wealth of form, to resolve such a question? But, doubtless, the author invented it for himself, and it is a fine invention, or, at all events, a fine resuscitation. There is also a simple metre rhyming in couplets, which the poet uses to obtain a majestic grace, rather foreign to the quiet compassion, or compassionate horror, of the rest of the book. The flag of morn in conqueror's state enters at the English gate. The vanquished eve, as night prevails, bleeds upon the road to Wales. We may compare with these powerful lines the elaborate and sumptuous metaphor in the first verse of Ravelli, which is in the oldest style. Wake, the silver dust returning, up the beach of darkness brims, and the ship of sunrise, burning, strands upon the eastern rims. Within metres almost as limited and simple as those employed with ascetic choice by the author of Imui Kame, Mr. Houseman exhibits a great subtlety of workmanship. It would not only be dreadfully prosaic, but also rather unfair to expose, at any length, his wizard tricks, the infinite joys that all true lovers of poetry find in the deft manipulation of verbal sounds are almost too sacred for explanation. Let a short poem be quoted almost at random. Now hollow fires burn out to black, and lights are guttering low. Square your shoulders, lift your pack, and leave your friends, and go. Oh, never fear, man, naught's to dread, look not left nor right. In all the endless road you tread, there's nothing but the night. The quiet and forcible alliterations of the first and last lines, the surprising vigour of the third, the impressive slowness of the fifth line, is remarkable. There is, moreover, an art in the juxtaposition of sounds about which it is rather sacrilegious to talk, not because of any superhuman merit in this particular poem, but because the art of melody is one of suggestion, and not of code. For we must not overpraise Mr. Houseman. As an inventive author, we neither need nor dare compare him with the great names of the past. The verse of Mr. Bridges shows only too well, by its combination of impeccable technique, and extreme dullness, and dearth of ideas, 
that it is all too easy to make lines sound pleasant in English by using simple language and simple metres. Footnote. In later life, Flecker became enthusiastic about Mr. Bridges. Spoken English is so intrinsically beautiful that a phrase like look not left nor right goes straight into poetry. Thus the very medium employed saves writers who employ the simpler style from those lapses into weakness or ugliness that beset the Victorians. It is far easier to preserve the virtues of terseness and strength in short and simple lines than in long and involved metres. A quiet style could never perpetrate such a line as that who prop thou asked in these bad days my mind which matthew arnold permitted to remain through edition after edition of his works at the head of a fine sonnet it is of course true that verse which is technically easy to construct is liable to lapse into carelessness of substance and idea and the shropshire lad is not free from weak and sentimental poems, from poems where the military subject is left to itself, as it were, to create an impression of strength, and others that express a mood and a thought so fleeting as to be without value. But, and this could be said of few books of vigorous poetry, there are no cacophonous lines. Mr. Houseman has achieved this fine result mainly because he has used pure spoken English with hardly any admixture of poetic verbiage. Indeed, some may blame him for putting such pleasant phrases into the mouths of peasants. If Browning was to be blamed for making his nobles talk slang, shall we not blame the poet who makes his peasants talk English? While Mr. Houseman's real justification for this is the great superiority of artistic effect, it is nevertheless a serious mistake to imagine that all peasants talk a coarse and corrupt tongue. Certainly, in some parts of England, a dialect is spoken which is fit only for caricature. But in other parts, such as the Welsh borderlands, the natives speak in marvellously pure English. Similarly, Mr. Hardy's peasants talk at times the most excellent English, and a similar charge of unreality has been brought against them. Mr. Hardy seems to attempt some defence for this, when, at the beginning of Tess, he explains the refined speech of his heroine by a reference to the fourth standard of the board school. It is a prosaic, but probable, explanation. At all events, Mr. Houseman can by no means be said always to transcribe the peasant speech. It is his to invent, not to copy, and he makes subtle alterations which affect the poetry without changing the general impression of simplicity. The poem on Breedon Hill, of which a verse has just been quoted above, is put into the mouth of a peasant lover. He might possibly have talked of coloured counties, or used some very similar phrase, but no lover would have said the lark was about him in the sky. He would have said above, undoubtedly. The change gives strength to the metre, and vigour to the phrase, but it is thoroughly artificial. But it is not the subtlety of its language, but its unity of subject, and its charm of feeling, that has made The Shropshire Lad almost a famous book, and enabled it to weather indifference. There is something even Homeric 
in his treatment of the old themes, love, war and death, in a simple and young community. His lovers affect no higher idealism, no trappings of middle-class sentiment. The sense of the bloom fading from the rose, of the close following of death upon love, is the note of the Greek anthology. Lovers, lying two and two, ask not whom they sleep beside, and the bridegroom all night through never turns him to the bride. Moreover, lest we get any idea of some foolish Arcadia where pine the lovesick swains, there are poems on suicide, murder, and men that tread on air. For better or for worse, fierce sins and a ghastly retribution are features of all English village life. And naked to the hangman's noose the morning clocks will ring, a neck God made for other use than strangling in a string. So here I'll watch the night, and wait to see the morning shine, when he will hear the stroke of eight, and not the stroke of nine. The whole poem is very terrible. Then in the next we are back again. Here this early unpublished essay breaks off. End of Part 17 Recording by Algie Pug